Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Was one of your ancestors a king, queen, prince, princess, duke, duchess, or some other royal personage? Maybe they were a member of the court, a lord or lady-in-waiting. Given the way that family trees work, branch leading to branch, century after century, you just never know. A royal connection could be closer than you think. To help you find out, Ancestry is offering five days of completely free access to all their UK records over this King's Birthday weekend. Over this long weekend, you'll be able to access over 100 million historical records and photographs. You can discover and explore full names, addresses, occupations, ranks, royal and aristocratic titles, and plenty of other tantalizing information. Your five-day Ancestry access also lets you save any of these records and photos to your family tree. Ancestry is offering all of this for free, with no credit card details required. So you've got nothing to lose, and who knows, you may just gain a royal connection. Remember the start date, the 7th of June. Free access ends on the 11th of June. Terms apply. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundagara people. I pay my respect to elders, past and present. This podcast episode contains references to sexual assault and descriptions of violent death. This instalment also contains references to a racist insult used against New Australians in the 1950s. I've not used the offensive term, but substituted the D word. Listener discretion is advised. It's sometime shortly after midnight on the 23rd of December 1952 and there's an intruder in the Euroka Street Waverton house that Shirley Butler shares with her mother Ethel and her uncle John Bull. The man's in his 20s, speaks with a European accent and is what's known as a New Australian. Most distinctive, he has a Hitler-style moustache. This intruder appears to be drunk or in some sort of trance. John Bull stands up to ask what he's doing in the house. The man pushes him back into his chair and says he's going to kill him. Then the man sits on the couch beside Ethel Butler. Do these two know each other? John Bull doesn't know. The man says he's staying the night and he's going to have sex with Ethel. John and the stranger argue and John chases the man out the back of the house. The man's gone, but John considers going to the police. Instead, he returns to the house. Now Ethel's nowhere to be found. When she reappears 20 minutes later in the kitchen, Ethel claims that she doesn't know the man at all. Shirley Butler, 21, a party girl who hates living in this house with her mother and her uncle, gets home at 1.30. John describes the intruder. Shirley says she has no idea who the man was. But later that day, Shirley tells a very different story to her neighbours, Harry and Winifred Cop. Shirley says that this D-word was her drunken mother's latest boyfriend. Ethel 
brought him into the house and her drunken uncle had gotten into a row with him and chased him off. Just another night in the alcoholic chaos of Shirley's home life. What Shirley Butler can't know on the 23rd of December 1952 is that she has less than 48 hours to live and police will soon be searching for the man with the Hitler moustache in relation to her murder and two other attacks in the neighbourhood. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of The Christmas Murder. What we've just heard was far more detailed than what was publicly revealed in the newspapers in the third week of January 1953. As we heard in part one, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Detectives revealed yesterday that a man was disturbed walking through the butler's home early on Christmas morning. He was a stranger in the household. Police said they were certain he was not a burglar. They would not disclose whether he had attacked anyone. As we'll hear, it would become unclear whether this intruder had been in the butler home early in the hours of the 23rd of December or early in the hours of Christmas Day. But before this was explored in court, readers of the Herald had to ask their own questions. Had this intruder been the man who'd murdered Shirley? What had he been doing in the butler home? Was this the same Hitler moustache-wearing creep wanted in connection with the assaults in the area? Why on earth was this information only being revealed four weeks after Shirley's murder? As these questions were being asked, there was hope of a breakthrough on the 23rd of January when a sailor was arrested in Melbourne for indecently assaulting a woman at Glen Iris a week earlier. This suspect was 24 years old and attached to Flinders Naval Base, but he'd been in Sydney on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Two detectives flew to Melbourne to interrogate the suspect. But this particular creep had a rock-solid alibi for his time in Sydney. Returning from Melbourne, despondent detectives chose their words poorly when they admitted to the Sydney Morning Herald that the Shirley Butler investigation was at a dead end. They said this on the 25th of January, one month to the day after her murder. Hoping to keep public interest high, in early February, the New South Wales Premier announced a £1,000 reward for information that led to the arrest of Shirley's killer. In March, the CIB's detectives and the Scientific Bureau collaborated on an exhibit for the Royal Easter Show. This was the first time such an experiment had been tried in the police museum at the showground. The display, which covered 50 square feet, was to reconstruct key elements of the crime. There was a mannequin styled to look like Shirley and dressed in an identical outfit. The display would include photos of her body, the story of her movements and detailed descriptions of that man with the Hitler moustache. The exhibit was seen by thousands of people but it didn't result in any valuable new information. Weeks dragged into months. Then, in early June, the police had a major breakthrough. They had a new witness. This was a 15-year-old boy named James Hamill who said he'd seen a man hurrying along Union Street about 150 yards from the vacant lot at about 12.40 on Christmas morning. The boy said he'd be able to identify the man if he saw him again. Now, the detective's hard work in sorting through all those immigration file photos might pay off. Police had come up with their most promising suspect. He was a new Australian with a Hitler moustache. Timber yard worker Richard Kapschak was 27, had been born in Poland and was now married and living in Rockdale. 
Kapshak had deserted from a ship in Fremantle in 1949. He'd been arrested but received permission to stay in Australia for six months. While he'd applied for permanent residency, Kapshak hadn't filled out the right forms and was now a prohibited immigrant, as was his wife. Kapshak was interviewed and initially denied ever having been in North Sydney or Waverton. He certainly had not been at parties in the area before Christmas. Kapshak denied attacking any women and he also denied knowing Shirley, her mother or her uncle. But Kapshak was put into an eight-man lineup, and teenage witness James Hamill picked him out. Further, partygoers identified Kapshak as the man with the Hitler moustache who'd done magic tricks and claimed to be a recently arrived Russian. Edna Nielsen, who'd been attacked in her house after the party, couldn't identify Kapshak. But her male friend said Kapshak was the man who tried to strangle Edna. Olga Mary Anderson, meanwhile, identified Kapshak as the man who'd broken into her house, tried to strangle her, and then threatened to kill her and her mother. But the hammer really seemed to drop when John Bull, Shirley's uncle, identified Kapshak as the man who'd broken into their house and assaulted him after talking of murder. This was a startling revelation. Between trying to strangle Edna and attacking Olga, Kapshak had been in the house of Shirley Butler. Bull said he'd been sitting in the home when Kapshak, quote, seemed to spring from nowhere. Kapshak had said, hide me, I'm running from the police. When John Bull had tried to get up, Kapshak had pushed him down and kept saying, I could kill you. He mumbled about staying in the house and he asked who lived there. Bull said his sister and Shirley. Kapshak, he said, had looked at a big photo of Shirley and, quote, he seemed to say something about killing a woman. At first, I thought he was drunk, but the way he stared and gazed made me wonder if there was something else wrong with him. According to the police, Kapshak then made a statement. He admitted to having gone to two parties in the Waverton, North Sydney area, and he said he'd later gone to the home of one of the female guests. Quote, I was hoping that this lady would let me stay in her house and drink a bottle of brandy, but she would not let me be friendly with her and took me to the front door. Then something happened and a man came out and yelled at me. I then left and went to another house where I had an argument with a man and an old woman came into the room. I left there and found an empty paddock, drank some brandy and went to sleep. I woke up feeling very drunk and I then went to a house and got in through a window and something happened with a woman and a man then chased me. I got a train back to Central. According to Kapshak, quote, something happened with a woman. According to Olga Anderson, she was awoken on the 23rd of December to find a man whose face was partly covered bending over her and holding her lips closed. He said, if you make a noise, I'll kill you. She started to struggle and he started to strangle her. Quote, I really thought my last hour had come. I thought that if I didn't make a superhuman effort, I would not survive. Olga used her knees on him and got free. He was brandishing a bottle and Olga thought that she'd been hit with it. She was certainly dazed and her jaw would be sore. Olga wasn't sure how, but she got to her mother in her mother's bedroom. Kapshak had come in with the bottle, threatened to kill them and demanded money. He'd only fled when he heard a neighbour coming. Despite these incredible circumstances and incredible circumstantial evidence, including the boy's claim he'd seen Kapshak running from the murder scene two days later, police didn't have sufficient evidence to charge him with killing Shirley Butler. 
Kapshak's wife had alibied him for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. He'd been with her in Rockdale, she said. In June, Kapshak was committed to stand trial for attacking Olga and John Bull. When he faced these charges in October, he was convicted and sentenced to 12 years in jail. Yet, officially, Shirley's murderer was still free. On the 10th of January 1954, the Sunday Telegraph's headline told readers, Mystery murder preys on mother's mind. Ethel Butler had gone to the Blue Mountains. She could no longer talk to anyone about Shirley's death, not even her surviving daughter Lois. Lois told the newspaper that her mother was sick, but still hopeful that the killer would be caught. Lois said that she didn't like visiting Ethel anymore because of everything that had happened. The paper said of the upcoming inquest, quote, A nervous mother, Mrs. Ethel Butler, will speak again of her daughter from the witness box of the city coroner's court. More than a year after the murder, the inquest into Shirley's death began on the 18th of January 1953 before the city coroner, Mr. E.J. Forrest. By then, police had interviewed hundreds of people but nothing that had so far been made public was as startling as what the court was now about to hear. Harry Kopp, who lived two doors down from the butlers, said he'd been drinking early on Christmas Eve. He'd been pretty full and he'd gone to sleep around 8 o'clock. About half past 12 the next morning, Harry's wife Winifred had woken him up. She said Shirley and her drunken mother Ethel had been arguing outside. This was not unusual. The women fought often. Harry didn't think much of it and went back to sleep. Winifred woke him again around 1.30. She said Ethel and Shirley had been fighting again. Then Ethel had walked by their door and said something like, She will never be able to throw it at me again. Never. Dr. Percy, the GMO, here told the court that Shirley had not been raped and the scene had been staged to make it look like a sexual assault. Harry Kopp, continuing, said he'd known Shirley for around 11 years. After seeing her body in the paddock, Harry had said to Winifred, We had better tell her uncle Happy. John Bull was nicknamed Happy because he was such a grumpy man. Harry had gone to the butler house with the bad news. Happy had said, Dead, oh. He'd then sat down. Harry had said that John Bull had seemed very upset, but had not seemed shocked. When John didn't speak any more, Harry said of Shirley, Don't you think you ought to go and make sure? Meanwhile, Harry's wife Winifred had gone to the back of the butler house to tell Shirley's mother. Harry and John Bull went to the paddock. Harry said, Well, she looks dead to me. I'm going to ring the police. Later, Harry came to John Bull's house. Harry tried to console him by saying, Well, it'd probably only be a few hours before the cops caught the killer but he claimed John Bull had replied, I could go and get who done it in 10 minutes. Harry Kopp told the court the last time he'd seen Shirley was the 23rd of December. She'd come over to their place at around 8 and told Harry and his wife that her mother had brought one of her boyfriends home early that morning. Harry had asked what he was like. Shirley had replied, some D-word. She told him that Ethel had come home and started to drink in the lounge room. This foreigner had just bowled in behind her. Her uncle John had jumped up and said, Where do you think you're going? They'd started to fight 
and the intruder, if that's what he was, had left when John Bull threatened to call the cops. Harry told the court that Shirley had said she was frightened and she wanted him to close the door even though it was hot. Harry couldn't say if Shirley had seen someone lurking outside. Shirley had gone home that night at around 11. Harry Cop told the court that Ethel Butler was often drunk and would become violent. He said that she and Shirley were not on good terms. Shirley had often sought refuge at his and Winifred's place when Ethel was chasing her. Quote, I have seen the mother attack Shirley, punching her and trying to get her by the throat. It has happened frequently. Mrs. Butler would be drunk or getting over it. Shirley has slept at our place four or five times. Harry said that Shirley's mother had been on a days-long bender before Christmas. The police prosecutor, Detective Sergeant Turner, asked Harry if he'd seen Mrs. Butler have altercations with Shirley's sister Lois. He said that he had. Sergeant Turner asked Harry, quote, What has Mrs. Butler's attitude been towards Shirley? Harry replied, My opinion is that as a mother, she should have been taken down and drowned. The coroner told Harry to can the commentary and stick to the facts. Harry reiterated that Mrs. Butler had often chased Shirley into his place and that she'd frequently punched Shirley and tried to get hold of her by the throat. He said that 12 months ago, Mrs. Butler had thrown a sugar basin at Shirley and split her eyebrow. These were shocking claims. So how credible was Harry Cobb? His military file at the National Archives of Australia reveal he had lied previously under oath. This had been on the 6th of May, 1941. That day, enlisting in the army, Harry gave his date of birth as the 6th of May, 1923, claiming he was 18. Harry had actually been born on the 6th of May, but in 1926, so he was just 15. But Harry's deception seemingly wasn't detected. He was enlisted in the army and sent to Darwin to serve in an anti-aircraft battalion. He was in Darwin on the 19th of February 1942 when the city was bombed by the Japanese and Harry would spend the next six months there as more attacks followed. In March 1943, Harry was discharged for lying about his birth date, but he'd be allowed to re-enlist in the CMF and would serve until the end of the war. Other than that, Harry's military record was clean. So he had lied, but as a boy and arguably in the service of a good cause. Harry had married Winifred in 1944, and since the war, he'd worked as a rigger. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, the couple had a son, Frederick, on the 15th of December, 1952, and the boy died in hospital on that day. This was just 10 days before Shirley Butler's murder. Could this recent tragedy have somehow affected their recollections of Christmas Eve, 1952? It's possible, but it seems unlikely. Testifying in the inquest, Winifred Cop said she'd heard Mrs. Butler walk past at 12.50am on Christmas morning. Quote, she was going crook on Shirley. Winifred told the court she heard a man and a woman arguing about an hour later, but she didn't recognise the voices. But the woman had not been Shirley. Winifred confirmed she'd woken Harry up after hearing Mrs. Butler. Of Ethel, Winifred said, quote, she had been drinking rather heavily before Christmas. She was nearly always drinking. Winifred, who went by the name Betty sometimes, said that when she went into the butler home on Christmas Day, John Bull had said to Shirley's mother, quote, Betty's here, Ethel. Shirley's dead. 
Mrs. Butler had just said, oh, and nothing more than that. After a little while, Ethel had said, where's Shirley? Winifred had answered, in the back paddock. Ethel had said, she can't be there. Winifred observed two strange things in the Butler house on Christmas Day. Ethel had made no preparations for Christmas dinner, which was what lunch was called in 1952. But far stranger, Ethel had been washing some of Shirley's clothes when Winifred had come in. Winifred knew that this wasn't normal. Shirley did her own washing. Why was Ethel doing it? And why was she doing it when it was time to be sitting down to Christmas dinner? Completing her evidence, Winifred told the court that Shirley and her uncle also hadn't gotten on well. Dr. Percy gave evidence about Shirley's injuries. Her blood alcohol level, which had been 1.0, indicating a medium to high level of intoxication, and his belief she'd been murdered soon after midnight and that the cause of death had been strangulation. This had left bruising and had broken a bone in Shirley's neck. The strangulation had been manual, that is, by hand, and done with great force. This suggested a strong man, but the court heard it could have been a woman in a frenzy. During his testimony, Harry Kopp had said that Ethel Butler was about the same size as Shirley Butler and about as strong. The medical opinion was that Shirley had sustained the head wound first, which would have left her dazed or even unconscious and unable to resist when she was being strangled. Dr. Percy said the wound at the back of Shirley's head could have been caused by a blow from a brick or from a fall against the corner of a brick wall. The cuts on her arms and ribs indicated she'd been dragged. He'd found paspalum grass and grains of coarse sand on Shirley's back. Neither had come from the vacant lot but there was sandstone in the butler backyard. Detective Constable Norman Merchant of the CIB's Scientific Bureau said he would have expected more blood beneath Shirley's head given the severity of the wound. Her pay envelope was beneath her body containing four one-pound notes. Her top coat was lying near a cement slab 15 feet from the corpse. In his opinion, the body had been placed there, dragged or rolled. Detective Constable Merchant said there was nothing in the vacant lot that could have caused the deep head wound. He testified that Shirley's mother had been wearing a green dress on Christmas Day and that it bore bloodstains near the neck. Detective Sergeant Harold Crowley testified that he'd noticed these bloodstains when he'd interviewed Ethel on Christmas Day. He said that he'd asked John Bull, in Ethel's presence, what time Ethel had come home that morning. Bull had said, sometime after midnight. Ethel had protested, I didn't, I didn't. Detective Sergeant Crowley said that Ethel had then become so hysterical he hadn't been able to continue interviewing her. But he had taken that green dress with the blood spots on it and had them analysed. Unfortunately, the sample hadn't been sufficient for any sort of result. Detective Sergeant Crowley said that his inquiries had revealed Shirley had frequently brought sailors to the concrete slab in the vacant lot. There, they'd talked and had wine. Quote, but that does not mean that she had low morals. She had even been assaulted because of her refusal to associate with some sailors in the way they desired. She was fond of drinking wine and could put up a good fight. Detective Crowley detailed Shirley's last known movements for the court. The Canton Cafe, the ferry to the Lunar Park Wharf, meeting Max Brown, drinking wine with him under the bridge, them kissing and then returning to Circular Quay. But when Max had tried to take things further, she had abused him and left boarding the Lane Cove tram at around 11.45.
Shirley, he said, had left the tram at North Sydney Railway Station, but, quote, extensive inquiries have failed to locate any person who saw her after that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Detective Sergeant Crowley said that on the 2nd of June 1953, he'd interviewed Richard Capshack who was now serving 12 years in prison for assaulting John Bull and Olga Mary Anderson. Capshack had denied to him that he'd ever been in Waverton or North Sydney or that he knew John, Ethel or Shirley or that he'd attacked any women. But he later admitted being in Waverton but said he hadn't been there on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. His story was that he'd been drunk and tired on the 22nd of December and had wandered into the butler home saying he wanted somewhere to sleep and such hospitalities were offered back in his home country. The next witness, Agnes Mary Wilden, the neighbour who lived between the cops and the butlers, told the court she'd heard a noise outside her window between midnight and 2am on Christmas Day. Prosecutor Sergeant Turner asked her if she could describe it. The witness replied, I certainly can because it is engraved on my mind. It was like somebody choking. Sergeant Turner, was the sound very distinct? Yes. Was it near or far away? Very near. Mrs. Wielden said it appeared to have come from someplace near the lane outside her bedroom window. She thought it might have been the cops' dogs, but she'd never heard them make such a noise before. Mrs. Wielden said definitively it had not been from the vacant lot. That was too far away. Quote, it was definitely near home. Sergeant Turner asked if Mrs. Wielden knew Shirley. She replied only by sight. She hadn't spoken to the girl. The police prosecutor then asked, Have you observed the conduct of Mrs. Butler towards Shirley? Mrs. Wielden replied, Do I have to answer that? I've heard more than I've seen. Sergeant Turner, What type of things have you heard? The witness replied, Quarrelling and fighting between Shirley and her mother, and it happened frequently. But John Bull, she said, was quieter, and he'd tried to keep the two women in order. Sergeant Turner asked, Was Mrs. Butler a sober woman? Mrs. Wielden replied, I couldn't honestly say that. I've seen her lying drunk in the backyard. Mrs. Wielden said that Mrs. Butler was violent when she was under the influence. The 15-year-old witness James Hamill told the court he'd seen Capshack running at a slow trot in Union Street, 150 yards from the murder scene at around 12.40 on Christmas morning. Another witness, Sybil Arnold, who lived at Waverton, said she'd seen Capshack nine times between the 18th of December and Christmas Eve. One time, he deliberately tried to walk into her. Mavis Fink astounded the court by saying she'd spent months investigating Shirley's murder, haunting pubs, milk bars and dance halls to track down men who'd known her friend and then getting them to cooperate with the police. Mavis told the court that Shirley was scared of her uncle John Bull and that he was, quote, always belting her. Max Brown testified he'd kissed Shirley a couple of times on Christmas Eve. 
They'd drunk wine under the harbour bridge and then come back to Circular Quay and wandered around aimlessly. In the crane place doorway, there was a little bit of petting. He tried to seduce her. Quote, she abused me. He thought she might have said he was wasting his time. In any event, quote, I gave up and walked away. On the second day of the inquest, another neighbour, Florence Peters, also of Eureka Street, said she'd seen Ethel Butler walking home at 12.30 in the morning on Christmas Day, about the time Shirley was murdered. Mrs Butler was carrying white flowers that grew in the neighbourhood. The court heard from Detective Sergeant Crowley that when he'd confronted Richard Capshack and told him that the boy James Hamill had identified him in the lineup, Capshack had said, quote, Sergeant, this is murder. I wouldn't admit it if I did it, but I did not do it. He supposedly had also said, All right, charge me. I'm not worried. All I have to beat is the identification of a young boy and he is mistaken. I admit I was at Bull's house that night. He is a man and he knew me, but the boy was mistaken. Capshack's wife was adamant that her husband had been with her in their room on Christmas Eve. Detective Sergeant Crowley had to admit to the court, I did not consider I had sufficient evidence to charge him. John Bull testified to say that Capshack had appeared in the house to be almost in a trance. The intruder had threatened to kill him. He asked Capshack why he didn't, and the man had mumbled something along the lines of, I don't want to kill tonight. John Bull said that Mrs. Butler had not been there for about 20 minutes after he got rid of Capshack. Then he found her in the kitchen. He'd asked her if she knew the chap. She said no. John Bull said that Shirley Butler had come home around 1.30 that morning. He described Capshack and she said she didn't know him. As for the immediate lead up to the murder, John Bull said that on Christmas Eve he was home alone by 10pm. He sat in the lounge room, reading and drinking, but claimed he wasn't drunk. Ethel Butler wasn't home. John Bull said she came back around 12.30 on Christmas morning, around the time Dr. Percy believed that Shirley had been murdered. John Bull said he heard Ethel trying to get in through a window. Then, when he went outside, he found her hiding in bushes. John Bull said he thought she'd done this because she was ashamed of her drinking, rather than her being afraid of him. He said that Ethel and Shirley had raised their hands at each other, but he'd never seen the mother try to strangle the daughter. John Bull said that part of Harry Cop's story was a deliberate fabrication. He denied having said it'd only take him 10 minutes to locate the killer. John Bull did admit that he'd once hit Shirley because she'd abused him, but he said the girl had no reason to fear him. He agreed that Ethel Butler had been washing Shirley's clothes on Christmas Day, he said this was unusual, but sometimes she did do this chore. All eyes were on Ethel Butler when she took the witness box, sobbing her eyes out. Ethel said that on the night of the 22nd of December, the man she now knew to be Capshack had come into her lounge room. She claimed she'd never seen him before. John Bull had argued with him and Capshack had run out the back. She'd then gone into her bedroom. Police prosecutor Sergeant Turner asked, would it be untrue to say you are not in the house when Bull came back? Ethel's answer was evasive. I never go out much. I'm always home. I never go away for long. Sergeant Turner pressed, You didn't come home after midnight that night, did you? She replied, I was home all the time in the bedroom. Ethel appeared to be confused about the date. When she was saying the night of the 22nd, it seems she was actually referring to the early hours of the 23rd. 
At least, that was what John Bull had said of the Capshack home invasion. Police Prosecutor Sergeant Turner asked Ethel Butler about Christmas Eve. She paused for a long time. The coroner said she had to explain her movements. Ethel said, I can't remember. Then Ethel agreed with Sergeant Turner that at 2.30 that afternoon, she'd been down on Blues Point Road drinking beer with a woman named Molly. What had Ethel been wearing? She said she couldn't remember. Sergeant Turner asked, was it a lime-coloured dress or a green dress? Ethel replied, I remember now that it was. Ethel said she'd wandered around the shops for a while and come home at 6pm. Sergeant Turner pressed, 6 o'clock? It wouldn't have been after midnight. Mrs Butler, no, I never stay out at night. Sergeant Turner, what did you do that night? Mrs Butler, I can't exactly remember. What time did you go to bed? 9 o'clock. Did you leave your home that night? No. Sergeant Turner asked, It would be a fabrication to say that at 12.30 on the morning of Christmas Day, you came from the direction of Commodore Street, walking into Euroka Street. This was what a witness had testified. Ethel's reply sounded like another evasion. Quote, I never stay out late. Ethel admitted that she and Shirley had argued about the girls' late hours, but claimed they'd never come to blows. The coroner warned Ethel that she didn't have to answer a question about whether Shirley had ever thrown anything at her because the answer might incriminate her. But Ethel answered anyway to deny that something like that had ever happened. She also denied ever using words along the lines of, she'll never throw it at me again, never. Ethel denied she'd been trying to get in her window at 12.30 and had then hidden in the bushes as John Bull had testified. Ethel said she had not been drunk on Christmas Eve or early Christmas morning. On the 26th of January 1953, a year, a month and a day after Shirley Butler's murder, Coroner E.J. Forrest presided over the fourth and final day of the inquest. Ethel Butler continued her evidence. She said it was true that up until Christmas 1952, she'd been on regular heavy drinking binges. Sergeant Turner did you find that while you were drinking, you had difficulty in controlling your temper? Ethel replied, I am quick-tempered, but she claims she had no recollection of ever attacking anyone while drunk. Richard Capshack was brought into court. Ethel said she'd seen him at her house. Sergeant Turner asked, when? She said, Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, as had first been reported in the Sydney Morning Herald. The coroner referred Ethel to the statement she'd made to the police in which she'd said she'd returned to the house on the 22nd and found Capshack and her brother there. By the 22nd, what she actually seemed to mean were the very early hours of the 23rd. So which had it been? The 23rd or the 25th? Or both? Had Capshack been in their house around the time Shirley was murdered? The coroner asked, do you still say he was at your home on the night your daughter was killed or was it on December 22nd? Ethel Butler replied, He was there only once. He was not there the night before Shirley was killed. It must have been December 22nd. Ethel denied again that she'd ever hit Shirley or her sister Lois. She sobbed as she recalled being told that Shirley was dead. But hadn't she been doing washing at the time, on Christmas Day, when most people were sitting down to family dinner? Yes, she told the court, she had been doing the washing. Sergeant Turner asked, You expected Shirley home for dinner? Yes. 
What preparations had you made for Christmas dinner? I can't remember. Sergeant Turner asked Ethel how the blood had ended up on her green dress. Ethel. Yes, I had a pimple and I pricked it and it bled on the dress. Sergeant Turner was a little confused. You told the police that the blood was from a cold sore on your lip. Ethel. Yes, I did have a cold sore on my lip and I rubbed it. Sergeant Turner. Why did you say the blood was from a pimple? Ethel replied, I did have a pimple. It could have been both. Ethel Butler told the coroner she'd told everything she knew. Richard Capshack was the last witness. He reiterated his various denials for things that he'd been convicted of and also claimed he'd been at home on Christmas Eve. As for why he'd initially lied about never having been to Waverton or North Sydney, he said, quote, That was because a person like my description was being sought for questioning in connections with assaults on women and for the murder of Shirley Butler. Capshack said that Sybil Arnold, the witness who'd placed him in Waverton nine times in the seven days before Christmas Eve, had simply been lying. Just like the boy who'd seen him in Waverton on the night of the murder. Just like Olga had lied when she said he tried to strangle her, when in reality all he'd done was stumble into her place when a bit drunk. After her inquest testimony, Mavis Fink gave an interview to the Sunday Mail. That she was very good looking wasn't lost on the writer. Quote, Dressed in a low-cut silk blouse which revealed smooth suntan shoulders and a black skirt hugging shapely hips, she looked more like a glamorous, slim-legged model than a young woman whose main object in life was to discover a killer. Mavis told the reporter, I have spent months questioning more than 100 people in dance halls, hotels, hamburger shops and other places where she was known, trying to find someone who saw her going home on Christmas Eve 1952. Mavis said she felt terrible about missing Shirley that night. Quote, If I hadn't missed her, she would still be alive because I was going to take her home to my place for Christmas with my family and we were going to take her away with us on holiday. I waited at that milk bar for an hour before a waitress told me I'd missed her. At the milk bar, they told me that Shirley had kissed all the boys and wished them a Merry Christmas before leaving. Mavis said she'd rushed to Wynyard and waited for Shirley there until one in the morning. Quote, but she had gone, and I never saw her alive again. Mavis defended her friend's honour. She said Shirley had merely liked cheering up lonely and unhappy sailors because she was lonely and unhappy in her Eureka Street home with her mother and her uncle. The Sunday Mail reporter asked Mavis about the risk she was taking trying to track down a vicious murderer. He wrote, quote, Mavis Fink's blue eyes turned suddenly bleak. I'm not afraid of anyone, she said. I just like to get at whoever killed Shirley, and if the inquest doesn't clear it up, I'll keep on looking. There's nothing else to do. I can't let it go now. The inquest didn't clear it up. Coroner E.J. Forrest said he was satisfied that Shirley had been murdered elsewhere and had been moved. But the critical gap in her movements, what she'd done after she got off the tram, had never been filled in. He said, quote, much evidence has been given which is conflicting in many respects, particularly as to time. That evidence gives rise to suspicions which may still remain. As for Ethel Butler's testimony, he said, quote, The evidence of Mrs. Butler was most unsatisfactory, but I formed the opinion that was possibly the result of her low standard of intelligence rather than any artfulness. 
Coroner E.J. Forrest found that Shirley Butler had died from strangulation feloniously and maliciously inflicted by some person unknown. So, who murdered Shirley Butler? Your guess is as good as mine. Was it a man, stranger or acquaintance who she met after getting off the tram? If so, why had no one seen them together? Why had he killed her? Was it because she wouldn't have sex with him? Where had he killed her? How had he transported her body without anyone seeing him? And how was it he selected her favourite haunt, the vacant lot near her house? Why had he made it look like rape? Another possibility is that a sailor or civilian, seeing Shirley was drunk, had followed her onto the tram and waited until she got off, followed her and then attacked her. But this raises all the same questions as Shirley meeting somebody when she got off the tram. Shirley being murdered by a stalker, a stranger or an acquaintance seems the least likely solution. Richard Capshack was in prison for 12 years for similar strangulation attacks made on women that week around Waverton. Had he randomly stumbled into the butler house? Or had Ethel brought him back? Had he been there only on the 23rd of December? Or had he also been there on the 25th? Perhaps he'd been going to return early Christmas morning when he'd run into Shirley and killed her. Again though, where did he murder her? Why did he move her to the vacant lot? Why did he make it look like rape? The other suspects were closer to home. Their recollections were unreliable. Was this the result of heavy and prolonged alcoholic intoxication? Or was it to avoid self-incrimination? Perhaps it was a mixture of both. Mavis Fink had testified that John Bull regularly beat his niece and that she was afraid of him. Had Shirley come home late, tripped his drunken temper and been beaten and strangled in the backyard where there was sandstone and paspalum? Moving her would make sense, make it look like the girl had been in a usual haunt when she'd been raped and murdered by some sailor. Then there was Ethel Butler. Multiple witnesses testified to seeing or hearing her in the street at the time of the murder. She'd been heard arguing with Shirley, unless, of course, Winifred and Harry Cop were lying. Ethel had supposedly made that angry comment that sounded like, she'll never throw it at me again, never. After that, there'd been a man and woman's voice out on the street. Multiple credible witnesses had described Ethel as a violent drunk and that she was constantly feuding with her daughter. There'd been blood on her dress, and she'd been unable to convincingly account for her movements on Christmas Eve. John Bull had testified she hadn't been in the house until she came back drunk at 12.30 and hid in the bushes. Another neighbourhood witness had said she'd seen Ethel Butler walking through the street around this time holding flowers. John Bull had also intimated that Ethel had known Capshack before he came into the house. And certainly, that was the impression Shirley had about her mother's latest boyfriend when she related it to Harry and Winifred Cop. In terms of circumstantial and contradictory evidence, there was a lot to incriminate Capshack, John Bull and Ethel Butler, separately or even together. But there wasn't enough to charge any of them, and certainly not enough to convict. Shirley Butler's murder would never be solved.
Unlike the slaying of Betty Shanks up in Brisbane, which became an infamous unsolved homicide discussed to this day, Shirley Butler's case was to fade from the newspapers. She became just another name. Her death, a capsule recap in newspaper roundups of mystery murders in the Harbour City. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back in the second half of January with new episodes. In the meantime, I'll be re-releasing one of my favourite archived episodes early in the new year. And of course, if you're a Patreon supporter or Apple subscriber, you'll have plenty of bonus episodes to keep you going. Have a great Christmas and a great new year. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.